Hello, and welcome back to Unfamiliar Tales, a podcast about animals telling animal stories. I am your host, Pratima Gopalakrishnan, and with me is my co-host, Haley Milliman. Hi, Haley. Hi, I'm very excited to be back. Yes, and we're still doing this over Zoom, but we could theoretically now do this podcast in person because we're very happy to report that in part due to the success of this podcast, <laughs> uh, Haley has decided to move to North Carolina full-time and uh, live here. So we're now actually in the same city, in the same place, and it's all thanks to really the success of this podcast and all all of you listeners who made this yeah. possible. Yeah, I'd like to thank our listeners for their continued support uh, and enabling us to be on Zoom together in the same city. Now, I'm very excited. Um, for both my new apartment, for its proximity to you, and again, for just all the great greatness it's going to bring to the podcast. For sure. So how was how was the move? Oh, you know, it was moving. Uh, it was it was stressful. I decided, well, I went through several rounds of decisions on how I would actually make the move happen. And I ended up exactly where I started, <laughs> which was doing the move in two shifts, one by myself and then a second with um, my familiars. And so that was a long week of moving and unboxing and being tired and in cars for a very long time. But at the end of the day, I have a lovely new apartment with carpeted floors, which is ex very exciting for the audio quality of this podcast. <laughs> but did you say familiars? I did. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you have a new addition, a new mysterious addition to your to your life. Who is it? Is she cute? <laughs> She's real cute. Um, a new old addition. So listeners will be familiar familiar with my familiar Knox, who is an Australian cattle dog, four years old. Um, and he has a, he and I have had a companion named Maymay, who is a little younger than four at this point, but she is an orange tabby cat. And she's lived with us in a lot of places. Uh, she's been, she's about six months younger than Knox. Um, and I've had her since she was a kitten. But when we, towards the end of my time in Connecticut, she had to stay with one of my friends um, for a number of reasons. She was, my apartment was set up in a way that she was kind of getting outside very easily because I lived in almost like a glorified studio that had just easy access to the outside. Um, so she was getting outside very easily and I lived on the corner of a really, really busy street uh, or two really busy streets. Um, and I wasn't able to like really successfully keep her from getting outside. And she had gotten lost a couple times and crossed these like really busy streets. So I was just worried about her, you know, anyway. So she stayed with a friend of mine for a couple months um, until I was able to find a new place to live. And then she has rejoined, rejoined the pack. She is sitting right behind me on a big fluffy white chair, reclined. Actually, she's not sitting. She's stretched out on her back with both of her paws on her chest, uh, looking like a Renaissance woman. And just, she has no, not a care in the world. So she's very happy with the move too. Does she have any podcasting experience? She does not, but um, you know, she is a fan of Tomcat Murr and she wanted oh. specifically to be in here because she knew that we would be starting to talk about part three this week. 
And uh, in part three, Mer mentioned some of her favorite toys. So she was very excited to hear and oversee my work and just make sure that I wasn't, that I was doing her favorite toys justice in as we spoke. So yeah, let's, you know, that's, so that's what we had a little bit of a break between parts two and three. Um, but uh, here we are, we're back. And we left off in part two with Mer in his adolescence. Um, and we talked about some adolescent foibles, uh, <laughs> love stories, things like that. Um, but now part three, Mer is, he's back from heartbreak. He's at the peak of his powers. Um, I read this article back in like 2018, I think, that was titled, Laura Dern is at the peak of her powers. <laughs> and it was, you know, when she was like doing the press thing. At the peak of her powers, yes. Was yeah. at the peak of her powers. That's what yeah. you do when you're at the peak of your powers. You do a press thing. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> every time I see Laura Dern now, I'm like, peak of her powers. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> Murr is... Murr is at the peak of his powers. Yeah, like Laura Dern, um, he has very glossy hair. <laughs> like um, Laura Dern. Yes. So <laughs> if you've seen Laura Dern recently, you've known how, how much hair acting she does and just how how she's flipping her her beautiful hair everywhere. And I feel like Murr is... You're of the horse. Yes, exactly. She might be a horse. Maybe Murr and Murr as well as a horse. Um Wait, what? <laughs> we may need to explain that a little bit. Shocker. Or this remove just it. <laughs> Murr is a horse. Laura Dern is a horse. Yes. Haley and I are also horses. And by horses, we mean that is our Chinese zodiac symbol, uh, which we learned pretty recently that we are both horses, which means that we are beautiful and vain. Like we have great hair, have great hair, yes, uh, great and we, manes. We neigh constantly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you just can't shut us up. <laughs> we keep neighing. <laughs> but yeah, so we we pick up with Murr. Uh, readers might remember he recently broke up with his first love, Kitty, and has rededicated himself to scholarship. So we pick up with him in part three. Uh, dealing with the breakup really and he says that he is he still kind of dreams of kitty or has these thoughts about kitty and has these moments of longing for her and wondering if he made a mistake all the while again being at kind of the peak of his the peak of his powers uh, but i did find it interesting that he says he says he's at the peak of his powers but also so it's kind of like oh he's having this glow up right this post breakup glow up where his hair looks fantastic where he's you know getting to do all the things he didn't get to do while he was in love um but then he also says that he's kind of disinterested in things so i was wondering what you made of that both he's at the peak of his powers but also his kind of disinterest in a lot of his normal the normal things that he loves i i didn't get that he was disinterested in everything mm -hmm. i guess um mm -hmm. Because well, he, he talks about how he wakes up every morning. This is actually the point in his life where he pioneers what I call the post-breakfast nap. And I, <laughs> I do try to practice this every day as well. It's a very important part of my kind of my routine. And for Murr, it's he realizes that so, so he wakes up, he has two, not one, but two bowls of sweet porridge with flour, sweet milk and a big knob of butter. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he finds that that's kind of the the key to the key to his um, to his vitality, obviously, mm-hmm. and his beautiful hair. Um, <laughs> he eats that, and then he has his big cushion. He falls asleep on the cushion, but then when he's as he's falling asleep on the cushion, that's when he, you know, Kitty's face will kind of appear before his mind. Yeah. Um, I guess he's not he's not really like he doesn't have to try hard anymore. You know, he yeah. doesn't have to do. He doesn't have to be the like. Grade school, grade yeah. school Murr who has to like read all these scientific treatises and yeah. uh, you know prove himself and read all these tragedies and poets and stuff. So he's he's settling into this routine that is again like optimized for his performance, which mm-hmm. is two bowls of porridge, a nap, mm-hmm. and um, Kitty's face appears before him and he falls into a kind of a melancholy state. But mm-hmm. um, he's just not. He's not in the same uh, heat of trying to prove a bunch Frenzy. of stuff by by reading by reading a bunch of stuff and writing a bunch of stuff. So I didn't. So I guess I didn't see it as he's lost interest in things, mm-hmm. um, or I saw it more as like, you know, he's tenured now. <laughs> yes. He doesn't have to. You know, he's made it. Like, he doesn't have to prove anything. He doesn't have to prove anything anymore. Yeah, I also think that he does actually to make. I think the distinction that. He's at peak corporeal form. Like, so his physicality, he's like, oh, this is this routine works really well for me physically. And even if I'm not, I'm not how I was in my youth, able to read, you know, five books a day and work on my treaties, you know, work on a treatise, but that's okay because, like you said, he's, he's lying out and he's, he's found what works for him physically really well, which has led him into this, this state um, where, again, he's very comfortable. He's, got very glossy great great hair (laughs) Um, and this is when he he's kind of in this pattern right over and over again uh where he's it seems like he's lost interest in a number of things um or not lost interest but he's in this pattern where he he's fallen into this pattern of eating the porridge going down for the long nap he says he doesn't even need to play with that the bird feather game anymore because he's just living living a life of luxury what's the what's the bird feather game so the bird feather game is when a feather is tied to the end of a stick on a string and the human, in this case, Master Abraham, holds the feather up and dances it around and then the cat chases said feather tied to stick, assuming that it's, you know, thinking that it's like a bird. Uh, this is Maymay's favorite game, so she wanted to make sure that I mentioned it. And Murr at this says he you know, doesn't even really have any interest in that anymore. Um, or he doesn't have any need maybe to do that anymore. He's happy and content to just have his two bowls of porridge and lie about a little bit. That sounds pretty good. I gotta yeah. say. So Murr is in this stage of deep contentment when his old friend Musius appears at the door and master Abraham lets him in and is kind of like, you know, maybe you can come and shake some shake some life into this cat. So Musius, uh, for those of you who uh, who recall from part two, is the is the black cat that appeared on the rooftop when Murr and Kitty were singing together, and Murr said, "Hey, you know, you can either you can either get you know get the hell off this roof, or you, or if you'd like, perhaps you'd like to join us in singing." It's a great. I think technique for diffusing any tension. <laughs> so, uh, Mur, uh, so Musius does in fact join them in singing. He's an excellent bass, so they have these, you know, these great um, 
uh, trios on the rooftop. But he, Musius is also the cat who looked out for Murr and actually mm-hmm. told him that Kitty was perhaps losing interest in this relationship and that she had um, had her eyes on this on the veteran cat from the <laughs> Order of Battle the of the Bacon, Order of dude. the Burnt Bacon. Yes. Um, so Musius is, you know, he's he's Murr's boy. There, yeah. <laughs> He's definitely looking out for Murr, but he's also, um, he kind of tells it like it is. I, li- I like Musius yeah. a lot. So Musius uh, shows up at Master Abraham's house. Uh, as Haley said, Master Abraham's like, sure, you know, come in, talk to him. Um, Musius comes in and starts talking to Murr about how he's he's almost, I would say, kind of shocked and maybe a little, I don't know if I would say dismayed or disgusted, but a little frustrated maybe with Murr, with the state he finds Murr in. So he finds Murr again, kind of laying about, feeling really, uh, really satisfied with all of this porridge he's been eating, and just really taking pride in his glossy fur, like the horse that he is. And I'm Musius, just, I'm just looking behind you, oh, May May, who's just like prone. <laughs> May May has definitely had two bowls of porridge today. Yeah, I think May May might be a Philistine cat, which is where we're getting to because Musius comes in. And accuses Murr of being a Philistine cat. What is a Philistine cat? This is the worst thing a cat can be, in music, according to Musius. And we do get we do get a definition. Yes. So a Philistine cat. <laughs> I guess the questions yeah. are: What is a Philistine cat, and yes. are you a Philistine cat? To which the answer is. Yes, <laughs> I am a Philistine cat. Maymay, it seems, is a Philistine cat. Philistine cats are very content to live a kind of bourgeois life of luxury and to be pretty shallow and and in pursuit of I guess material pleasures. Is that how would you <laughs> is that how you would describe it as well? He goes into a long passage about all of the characteristics of a of a Philistine cat. So Musius shows up as he often does in this book, to give Murr something like a wake-up call. Uh, and in this case, the wake-up call is that he, he shows up and he says, you know, Murr, you're in danger of becoming a truly dreadful Philistine. This is, you know, the worst possible thing that could befall a cat, and I see all the signs um, of, of that happening in your life right now. Um, so he, he says... You say you've applied yourself to the sciences too strictly to have any time left over for going round town with other tomcats. Well, forgive me, brother, but that's not true. Plump, well-fed, and glossy as you are, you don't look at all like a bookworm given to burning the midnight oil. Believe you me, it's this cursed, comfortable life makes you lazy and lethargic. You'd feel very different if you had to wear yourself out the way we do to lay your paws on a few fish bones or a little bird. I just, oh my gosh. I've read this passage so many times, but the, <laughs> and, but this time, just now, as I read it, I was like, oh no. <laughs> He's literally describing a humanities postdoc. <laughs> I've, applied, so <laughs> I've applied myself to the sciences too strictly to have any time left over for going around town with our tomcats. Yes, I do tell myself that. I say I'm too busy. To do, but also it's not true. But that's also it's I was, not true you... because of course I just woke up from a nap <laughs> I was an just hour thinking ago. That. 
As you read that, I was like, how many plans have I canceled because I'm working? (laughs) And how many times has that working been a nap? And the comfortable life makes me lazy and lethargic. Yes. And there's some, yeah, he goes into some more about how Philistine cats shun and avoid danger, which is true to me. (laughs) I shun and avoid danger. Um, And, you know, that Philistine cat, I think where maybe... I get the sense that Philistine cats are very pleased with themselves, which is not true to my own experience of myself. So maybe that's where I have a little bit of hope um, for not being, uh, you know, a Philistine cat. But I do like naps. (laughs) Yeah, and Musius has a whole um, list of, you know, what what are the characteristics of a Philistine cat. So... Um, if you two can, you two listener can follow along and find out if you are a Philistine cat. Um, I'm imagining like a (laughs) Cosmo Magazine style (laughs) quiz that's like, you know, if you answered mostly C's, then you're probably a Philistine. If you answered mostly B's, you're kind of a Philistine. And if you answered mostly A's, you're the opposite of Philistine. It's like a Canaanite. Uh, So I did notice that there was one part when I was rereading this where Musius says that a Philistine cat will offer food, a delicacy, to another cat and then eat it himself in secret, which is what Murr did with the fish head with his mother. (laughs) So I feel like Murr's been in danger of being a Philistine for for a long while now. I think that's right. Which is why I I don't think that this is like a new condition that Murr is in. Mm. Like he's always been doing mm-hmm. this. I think Musius, <laughs> you know, Musius is a relatively recent addition to Murr's life. Like, you mm-hmm. know, I think they met on that rooftop and so Mur Musius is telling some difficult truths to his to his new friend. Yeah, I mean Murr's first instinct when falling in love was to consult to the poets. <laughs> so I feel like definitely he's Philistine. Always... If you consult yes. Ovid for love advice, you're definitely a Philistine. Exactly. A uh, yes. Philistine cat, however thirsty he may be, begins by lapping all around the sides of his saucer of milk. Interesting. Gotta be neat, you know. Nothing is more important than the glossy hair. Yes. Not even thirst. <laughs> He'll promise you all manner of things, but when you leave, he'll assure you of nothing but his friendship. Okay, Pebbles. This quiz will tell you once and for all if you are a Philistine cat or not. I got it from Cosmo Cat. They really know their stuff. Wow. Okay, I love quizzes. Let's do it. Here we go. Question one. At dinner time, do you begin by lapping all around the sides of your saucer so as to keep your nose and whiskers clean? A. I dive nose first into my saucer. B. I start around the sides of my saucer, but still like finding treats in my nose afterwards. Or C. I eat with decorum in concentric circles to the center of my bowl. Hmm. Well, I have to say, A. I dive nose first into my saucer. But sometimes I like finding treats on Deanna's nose afterwards. So, let's go with A, but with a side of B. Good choice. 
Question two, do you identify the best napping spot as soon as you enter a new room? A, no time for napping. First, I gotta get low to the ground and scope out the area for any dangers. B, I walk in confidently, but need to rub my head against all the furniture first. Or C, I find the closest blanket, circle around it, and fall asleep. Well, that's an interesting question. I would go with A, no time for napping. I gotta get low to the ground and scope out the area for any dangers. My feral childhood still lives on. You sound quite wise. I like to scope out for dangers too. Alright, last question. What would you rather be doing on a typical Friday night? A. Out with my cat friends singing songs and drinking Seuss tearing on the rooftop? B. Hanging out with a couple of close friends watching TV? Or C. Sneaking in a kitchen cabinet and looking for unattended food? I'll have to go with C. Sneaking in a kitchen cabinet and looking for unattended food. Alright, I just have to add up all these points. Give me a minute. Okay, Pebbles, you're a... Haley, does everything you do on all occasions depend on thousands and thousands of considerations? <laughs> <laughs> Not me. Come for me, Musius. <laughs> it's either like thousands or absolutely none. It's like one or the other. Like it's, not, it's never like a normal amount of considerations. It's either like, <laughs> I'm doing it or like, yeah, <laughs> or nothing. So Musius has, Musius definitely has a diagnosis. Um, I'm not so sure about his prescription. So the cure <laughs> for being a Philistine cat is apparently, like, to stop being a Philistine cat, you got to join a cat fraternity. That's right. Yes. <laughs> and and speaking as someone who almost joined a human sorority, I feel like joining a human sorority would have made me more of a Philistine than less of one, personally. But maybe that's the difference between human and cat Greek life. <laughs> Though I will say, from what Musius and Mer get up to, they seemed very similar. So I'm not quite sure. Uh, you know, I guess they weren't like out in the town roughhousing, but, you know, yeah, <laughs> it definitely... It definitely was not. I definitely feel like if I had rushed and completed the process of joining the sorority, I would have been even more insufferably Philistine than I am right now. What are some similarities between <laughs> the human and feline rush processes? Yes. So I think one of the biggest ones is the presence of songs. <laughs> that have <laughs> deep oh <my> meanings <laughs> that you don't quite know going into the process that you were supposed to just stand and participate in uh in a song <laughs> i actually i actually did because you know i went to a big a school with big greek life so like i actually did pay the 50 dollars or whatever it was and like sign up for the like the th the what do you call it the round robin the rush. yeah oh, the oh. rush yeah 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 because yeah. it starts with i got eliminated like the first like oh nobody God, called me back eliminated oh my gosh, like nobody called so me back oh no 
But that's so sad. I did get to go to the houses and hear yeah. the songs. songs There's yeah. so many songs. I know, and you have to stand and pretend you care about like how rever. It's like this weird reverence piece. So at Columbia, so I rushed at Columbia, and. I went to Barnard, but I rushed at Columbia because they combined their Greek life. Anyway, the the campuses and the schools are, like, extremely integrated. Um, but, yeah, so Greek life happens at uh, happens at Columbia and and all of the sororities and uh, have students from both Barnard and Columbia in them. And I don't think anyone can be eliminated. Like, I think they don't. Like, I think everybody has to find a home <laughs> in, in really? Columbia's Greek life. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, which is interesting. I don't think, like, any, I don't think I knew anybody who, like, yeah, I'm almost, like, I'm I'm almost positive. I don't, I don't think I've known a single person who's ever been turned down. God, what did you do? Nothing. I just sat there and listened to their songs. You didn't burst out into a verse. That's probably (laughs) what That was my mistake. I can improve on this cover of T.I. that you're doing here. Alpha Chi Omega themed <laughs> lyrics. Wait, so there's also like secret songs though. So did you just hear the like? I heard the songs? you know whatever the they se- well, the most public version of their songs. Okay. For the the fifty dollar tier again. Yeah. I think I did okay. have to pay fifty dollars to to just like, be told just, you're to not be perfect. told I'm not good enough. No. <laughs> Extremely so, philistine. Yes. So I got to the final process with. There's four sororities at Columbia. I got like bids, I guess, from two of them. Um, and then, oh my and gosh, I, you are a bona fide Philistine. I know, and I just would have been more so. So, and the final night after these two sororities are like, we want you. Then you go to this like weird candlelit ceremony, and they sing like the the behind closed doors like song of. You That's know, where like, you get the really good stuff. <laughs> yeah, it might also have been in Latin. I don't, I don't remember, but it's like where you get or maybe Greek would have been more likely. But um, you get, uh, you get like, yeah, you get like you're supposed to get in and like see all the secret rituals, which are supposed to make you like really want to be part of this sorority. Um, so that's, I think, part of how it's like Mer. And then I, I know I'm skipping ahead in Mer's story, but then also like Mer. I was very drunk at this point, and I had to be taken away from one in a stretcher to get what to get an IV. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Um, yes, yeah, I was. I was actually not drunk at the time of the ceremony, but I was really, really hungover, and I don't think, I don't think that I was actually like so drunk. I think it was just like uh, I had been drinking the night before, and then I. Um, we were at these like really just like long ceremonies where you have to like stand around and pretend to care and you don't eat anything. And so I was just feeling very ill. So I had to be cabbed, which is what they call the Columbia emergency ambulance, like Columbia ambulatory something, something. So I had to be taken out. like, quick, she needs some kava immediately. (laughs) So they took me out on a stretcher to the hospital. And um, so I didn't finish. I got an IV of fluids and I didn't finish the songs and I didn't decide that the sororities were worthwhile. And maybe if I had stayed for the entirety of the songs, I would have decided. They're like, we're <laughs> just going to tell you the best part of being a Delta Gamma. A Delta Gamma. Yeah, that's fair. That's, I don't think that was one of them. It's not one of the ones at Columbia. They, those were the popular girls at Tulane. 
at least in 2008. But anyway, not who knows if they are anyway. <laughs> who knows if they are still. Um, but we're but yeah. we're much cooler now. We don't care who was cool at Tulane yeah. in 2008. We care who was cool in 1819. <laughs> exactly. In the cat fraternity. In the German cat fraternity. Yes. So We've that's come my a long experience. way, Haley and I. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's my experience. What what happens to poor Mur? Or not poor Mur. Mur has a great time. What happens to Mur? <laughs> yeah. So Mur is uh, invited to a uh, basically a meeting of a of this uh, German cat fraternity or or in in, in the German it's called um, Burschenschaften, and these are basically student organizations from the you know early to mid uh, 1800s. Um, and we were let's say we were reinterpreting some of these stories of Murr in this in this cat fraternity in light of contemporary uh, <laughs> mid 2000s. Greek life. There are some um, striking, alarming parallels between the two, <laughs> most notably the songs. The main things you need to succeed at this kind of, uh, at a cat fraternity <laughs> meeting for any of our listeners who are thinking of rushing, uh, is you have to be able to drink a lot of soused herrings. Yes. <laughs> uh, and singing is also a highly valued um, skill here. And not just singing, but actually coming up with your own verses. So the rush process mainly consists of, you know, they'll kind of strike up a rising tune together and then each of the cats takes turns uh singing singing a verse extemporaneously and soon it's Murr's turn and Murr fucking kills it he does such yes. a good job everyone's like oh my gosh Murr you won rush i will say i feel like he takes such joy in the celebration of his genius that i do wonder if he is still at his heart, a Philistine cat, because he derives such pleasure from the acknowledgement of how great he is. So, I yeah. I found myself not fully trusting his account. I was just like, it was like, and then everyone fainted because it was so good. <laughs> oh, I, uh, yes, yeah, it was he says here too the exalted genius of my mind was recognized True. they pressed him to their throbbing breasts in ecstasy of how just wonderful his verse was so after getting drunk on Sue's tearing he feels he stumbles around a little bit and then Musius brings him home which is really nice he helps him he helps him get back <laughs> helps him get back through the skylight safe to home we do actually have a rare audio recording of this mm. Rush meeting. Um, this was uh, not easy to get, needless to say. Uh, voice recordings from the 19th century are, of course, very rare to come by. Uh, but moreover, fraternities, uh, for those of you who have actually managed to uh, enter a fraternity or sorority, you might know that these are closely guarded secrets. Uh, this is the kind of musical genius that you can expect. We're very happy to be able to share that with you. Eke quam bonum et quam jucundum habitare fratres in unum. Eke quam bonum et quam jucundum habitare fratres in unum. All too sharply barks the palm. Far too loud, the poodle, see the bold and valiant Tom. Silencing that noodle, eke quam. 
Ecke kom, bonumet kom, je kundem habitare flatres inunam. Ecke kom, bonumet kom, je kundem habitare flatres inunam. See the field, the steen go by, doff your cap, politely, such a fool, his head held high. We don't suffer lightly, ecke kom. Ecce com, bonum et com, jecundum habitare fratres inunam. Ecce com, bonum et com, jecundum habitare fratres inunam. Merrily, the fish must swim, birds fly, in fair weather, fin and feather, let us him. Though we catch them never, ecce quam, ecce quam, bonum et quam, jacundum habitare fratres inunam. Ecce quam, bonum et quam, jacundum habitare fratres inunam. Mew and growl, and growl and mew, but do not scratch, pray pause, show yourselves in rosy hue. And spare your nice sharp claws, ecce quam, ecce quam, bonum et quam, jacundum habitare fratres inunam, ecce quam, bonum et quam, jacundum habitare fratres inunam. Each of us, beside the others, paw in paw, we sang, we're a merry bunch of brothers. Philistines go hang, ecce quam, ecce quam, bonum et quam, jacundum habitare fratres inunam. Ecce quam, bonum et quam, jacundum habitare fratres inunam. So this is what Murr has been up to. He has been singing songs with Musius and his new cat brothers. And then over in our other narrative, Chrysler is up to something pretty similar. Chrysler is joining a brotherhood as well. A brotherhood in Christ. Yes, a brotherhood in our Lord and Savior, <laughs> or his Lord and Savior. Praise be. So we've spoken in previous episodes about how at times the connections between the Myrrh and Chrysler narratives are nebulous, um, and how at times they're very explicit. And I'd say from, you know, this point forward in the book, they're very explicit throughout. So again, as Murr is experiencing brotherhood with this ca- these cats, um, Chrysler finds himself at the doors to a monastery. Um, and you might recall from the end of part two, Chrysler has disappeared from, from the court of Prince Irenaeus in under a cloud of kind of suspicion and under in suspicious circumstances. So no one quite knows what happened to him. And we find out what happened to him in a letter that he sends uh, to Master Abraham, which which Master Abraham does not. Open. Yes. So a, a large part of the beginning of this section is different characters kind of wondering what happened to Chrysler and worrying over him a bit. And it seems like potentially Abraham, Master Abraham had the answer the whole time. He just didn't want to open the letter, which I feel like is pretty relatable. 
<laughs> honestly. So I, yeah. So I mean, at the end of part two, we I think we, if I remember correctly, we don't even remember if we don't even know if Chrysler is dead, mm-hmm. right? Because we just hear the gunshot, mm-hmm, exactly, um, and we don't know who got shot. Yes, and then part three begins and. We learned that Hedwig is is very ill. She's basically in a catatonic kind of state. Um, you know, Irenaeus is a his, her father, Irenaeus, Prince Irenaeus, not a prince, is is a mess, and he, you know, he's consulting with Master Abraham and Madame Menzon and all these people about you know what's going on with Hedwig. How do we how do we um, make make sure she uh, is revived? And also Hector suddenly mysteriously left. We learned at the end of part two that Hector mysteriously left the court. So we're wondering. Okay, does that mean the uh, marriage with uh, Hector and Hedwiga is is off? Is he coming back? Uh, so everything's kind of a mess. And then meanwhile, Master Abraham has this this <laughs> little letter that he's just like just doesn't feel like opening. <laughs> I read this. I reread this part <laughs> shortly after I received peer reviews back on my first ever academic article that I've ever like sent off for peer review, and. My, <laughs> I got it the day before I left for vacation, and so I was like, "Do I open this now?" And then I like, could ruin my vacation. And it was actually like it was it was good news, relatively speaking. Like it wasn't a rejection; it was a revise and resubmit, which in academic terms is like that's that's good. That means they see but the readers see potential and the editor sees potential in the piece. It's a good fit for the journal, but you need to do a lot of significant work to um, actually make it um, publishable. It's a good outcome, great outcome, especially since it's the first time I submitted something. But I was like, well, do I open it now and like possibly ruin my vacation or do I just not open it? Um, and everyone around me was like, oh, my gosh, if you have the superpower to like not open it, do that and like go enjoy a vacation. But, you know, personally, I would never be able to do that because I want to know what it says. <laughs> and indeed, you know, I, I forwarded the reports to Haley, who read the reports before I did. Immediately. I opened it immediately. I exactly. <laughs> I sent it to you. I was like, yes, I saw it. And I've already opened it. I cannot resist this. <laughs> multiple people who all read it before I did but I still I still just couldn't couldn't bring myself to to open it but it got to got to the point where I came back from vacation and I was like well I still don't really feel like opening it (laughs) so a few more days went by and (laughs) you know eventually I forced myself to open them yesterday and it was fine I, you know, I read that passage of Master Abraham, and until I went through this experience with you, I would never have thought <laughs> that that was, like, a realistic human. Like, I sometimes don't open letters solely because I don't want to go to the mailbox. Like, I'm just like, that's too far away. There's nothing of interest. But once I get it, I have to open everything immediately. And I can't... I would, I would have been like, who could resist... Like, letters that they've done the act of retrieving. I mean, to let Master Abraham speak on my behalf. For many years, Master Abraham had been in the habit of leaving letters he received unopened for hours, often for days. Never mind what's in them, he said. The delay doesn't matter. If the letter brings bad news, then I gain a few more happy or at least untroubled hours. If the news is good, a man of settled habits can wait to indulge his pleasure. 
This was a reprehensible habit of the masters, since first, a person who leaves his letters unopened will never amount to anything in business or in political or literary journalism. As for the present biographer, he does not believe in Master Abraham's stoic indifference, but rather regards his habit as a certain anxious reluctance to disclose the mystery of a sealed letter. It may be that we sense here too that oppressive feeling with which we peer into the night of the future, and just because a little pressure of the fingers is sufficient to reveal what is hidden, the moment constitutes a climax that disquiets us. The little sheet of paper was an evil magic spell drying up the flower garden where we thought to stroll, and life lay before us a bleak, inhospitable desert. If it seems a good idea to collect one's thoughts before that light pressure of the fingers reveals what is concealed, perhaps it may excuse Master Abraham's otherwise reprehensible habit. Man, well, I first of all feel like this is potentially more evidence that Chrysler is the author of his own biography because he really cares a lot that Abraham took so long to open this letter. Now there's a feature on USPS that will tell you what mail you're getting. Oh, yeah, I have that. <laughs> yes. I want that before email just to like prepare mm -hmm. me. Someone is thinking of sending you an email tomorrow. Brace yourself now. <laughs> No, I, I have the UPS, USPS feature. I got it as soon as I learned that it existed because I don't like curious anxiety. And now it really is just a bringer of bad news because it's either nothing or like an IRS notice. And there's like no in between. I'm this way. We've talked about how I'm this way with even like movie spoilers. Like I don't like the curious anticipation. I just need to know what happens. <laughs> That sounds horrible, Haley. I mean, that, <laughs> honestly. But my affliction, I think, will horrify you even more. Oh, no. I need to look up, like, a plot synopsis of the thing as it's happening, but I can't okay. look beyond the point where I am. So, I like, so what do you do? How do you, how do you navigate that? I just have to, like, very carefully scroll through, like, a recap or whatever. Of oh, the thing that I just saw. I just have to, like, see it. It looks definitely the most damaged of all of these <laughs> god oh man that's hilarious yeah that's that's weird <laughs> when you could just see the whole thing <laughs> is it like live as you're doing it so yes. like wow, wow so then i miss stuff and then i have to like and then go you have back to come back to the like reading the <laughs> oh man wow i think maybe master abraham is the most healthy amongst <laughs> <laughs> i know it's true <laughs> Oh, man. So, okay. So, Master Abraham has this letter on his desk. It's, like, on his drawer. He goes for a walk in the park and then opens it and finds good news, which is exciting. Um, and the good news is that his friend's alive. So, Chrysler kind of catches us up from the moment where we last left him. So, we pick up with Chrysler in the park when he is attacked by a stranger wielding a pistol and just... By, you know, it seems like a, a twist of fate, Chrysler manages to avoid being shot and gets in this kind of scuffle with the attacker. Um, and it seems that Chrysler is able to escape from this scuffle by stabbing the attacker with a dagger that was 
I guess hidden in his walking stick. I felt that like that was an interesting detail. He says the dagger from my walking stick, and I was like, oh, that's a pretty, pretty intense walking stick you brought there, Kapelmeister, sir. But okay. <laughs> but anyway, so he says that he make he's able to stab his attacker and flee. He says he ran away as as fleet a foot as Ajax or as any Ajax. Um, and he tried, he wasn't, I think, it seems, trying to escape from the court of Prince Irenaeus. He was just kind of running blindly in the night, and he ran and ran and ran and ran and ran, um, and then realizes he had reached the mountain, and then hears a booming singing voice in the distance, and at this point I was like, there are just so many people singing in 19th century Germany, just everyone, cats are singing, people are singing. You couldn't take a step without hearing people, you know, like, hills are alive, yeah. Exactly, like a booming, loud singing voice, and it turns out that the owner of this singing voice is a Benedictine monk, um, who is singing a Latin hymn, and it also turns out that uh, Chrysler knows him. They he recognizes him as Father Hilarius. Uh, <laughs> I kept reading his name as Father Hilarius. Yeah, tell us tell us a little bit about Father Hilarius. He's like Hilaria Baldwin. He's like maybe Spanish. He is like Hilaria Baldwin in that he peppers his speech with. You know, little foreign phrases that <laughs> I'm Latin pretty phrases. sure are not authentic, <laughs> like fake Latin phrases. Um, so they have this. They, I mean, it's just, honestly, this scene sounds so delightful. Um, I know they have this like little breakfast thing at on this mountain. Um, it's like a little picnic, and Father Hilarious, hilarious. Has all the <laughs> finest, finest treats that industrious monks have made at the abbey. So they have, I don't, I imagine them having some really nice cheeses and yeah, crackers, grapes. but yeah. grapes. And yeah, I think they have some bread and yeah, some roasted fowls, some wa- wow. real Franconian wine, um, some partridges. That's a lot to carry. <laughs> on your person to a mountain. <laughs> he, he was carrying... I know, that's true. He was planning on taking all this... He was planning on eating all this himself. I know. Or at least he had enough to, like, split with another per- with another person. Chrysler does... Chrysler does say that Father Hilarius is, like, not what you would maybe picture a monk to be. He he describes him as very well-fed. Uh, well, I, I always guess. I always imagine monks as extremely well-fed because I know mm-hmm. they have all the good good beers and wines and good all the fowls. fancy stuff. Roasted <laughs> all the fowls. good partridges. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and nothing to do all day but carry those things up a mountain and eat them. I mean, it's like the singing. ultimate. So uh, Chrysler, Chrysler gets me. So, of course, he, so he, you know, he and Hilarius are talking on this mountain side and having their breakfast and like, Hilarious basically says, "Okay, why don't you come back to the to the abbey with me?" So these two know each other from, um, I guess back when Chrysler was at the Grand Duke's court, and Hilarious is like, "You know, I can probably set up like a visiting scholar thing for you. You can come hang out at the abbey, um, and you know, you can really like, <laughs> I can 
reading that, I was like, oh my god, this sounds like the perfect gig. You know, I'll learn to <laughs> learn to make some fancy wines. Like, what what Even more could I want? Yeah, I've always wanted to get into canning and like you know, make jams and stuff. So like, this sounds perfect. And Chrysler agrees. So writes to Master Abraham, and he's like, life's good. I mean, this is yeah, room and board included. What more could you want? Um, and uh, yeah, he is now. He's not. He's not a monk. But he's like on a trial period kind of thing. He's on a retreat. I mean, this Haley. I mean, come on. Like this stuff would really, really sell right now. Like, oh the, yeah, like the tech the free retreat. Yeah, billionaire. Yeah, yeah billionaires the billionaire love camp. monk stuff. Yeah. Yes, billionaire summer camp could easily be on this mountain with the monks drinking yes. good oh, wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking Latin, speaking Latin badly, <laughs> just like throwing in Latin phrases just to like. Ergo, be bombas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would not be surprised if at the Tech Billionaires Retreat, Mark Zuckerberg was ending every toast with be bombas. I don't know why I'm giving free advertising to these people. I should just get them to pay for it at our <laughs> podcast. But I've been getting these ads for, like, the monk planner. People love oh. monk stuff. Like, you know, can you can have the work ethic of a monk. Just do nothing all day but can can food and eat cheese and carry it up the mountain. <laughs> On the contrary, no, no, no. On the contrary, what what's what draws people to it is precise this like picture of you know industriousness. Like they're yeah. all they're producing. You know, like I'm on a podcast. <laughs> what am I doing with my? I could be making jams right now. So I think that's what that's really it's it's designed to get people like me and. It will if I ever like run into a wayward monk on the hills <laughs> of Germany. I, there's no hope for me. Yeah, I will join immediately. Yeah, I would appreciate your jam. So I think that that if you want to can a bunch of jam and I'll buy it from you. So it's it's all, but you know, it's like it's all for Christ. That's the other thing. I don't oh. need to. I think. It's just or no, I know I do, I do need to because like I need to like sell it to the villagers or something to get. The I don't money know. For Christ, it's, yeah, for, Jesus. for yeah, for Christ and for for more wine, for <laughs> more wine. Yeah, yeah. I have none of the desire of producing anything, but I do have the desire to like eat cheeses on a mountainside. That is all I want. So if I saw a monk and he's like, you had to make some jam, but in exchange you'd have a lot of free time to eat some cheese on the side of this mountain. I would be like, yep. I'm in. Clearly hilarious, hilari- <laughs> hilarious. Father hilarious. H, yeah, yeah, brother H, has time to be on this mountain with enough breakfast for at least two. <laughs> Potentially more. <laughs> Potentially more. Suffice it to say, it's a good gig. Chrysler's happy. Yeah, and so Master Abraham, as we said, is very excited to finally open this letter and hear that Chrysler has found a place to rest safely, that he is alive. Um, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, but part of Abraham's relief is because things at the court of Prince Irenaeus have been pretty chaotic since Chrysler departed in the night. So as we as we mentioned earlier, Hedwiga has fallen into this kind of catatonic state. And it, it turns out that that catatonic state comes on exactly at the moment that the that the shot rings out in the in the forest. Um, so right before Hector leaves and every everyone's kind of trying to figure out what happened. So the doctor has his guesses. I think the doctor is convinced that it has something to do with a love quarrel. We don't actually ever learn 
if that's true or not. But the doctor's pretty convinced about that. And so he keeps trying to push Hedwig's mother into telling him some spicy details of her love life. And her mother's like, that is not fitting for a princess. So we have this curious state that she's in. You know, it's an interesting contrast with how how Murr and Kitty deal with the aftermath of everything that happened in part two. So multiple times in part three, we get, you know, um, Hoffman writes something about how for, for a man, love is obviously a very important part of his life, but for a woman, it's her whole life. So uh, I'll, I'll admit, I think Kaylee and I were both pretty confused by what <laughs> he was trying to say um, about like whether Hoffman was implying that that was why Hedwiga is catatonic, whether it was some kind of, you know, full body response to quarrel. So I couldn't, yeah, yeah love lost. Um, I mean, I think the most unproblematic love stories in this book are, are the only unproblematic love stories are the cat's love stories. Everyone else, um, we, I mean, we hesitate to even call some of these love stories like Hector and Julia. Like, it's not clear if that's reciprocal at all. Um, uh, and then we also learn in part two and in, uh, also in part three that Master Abraham, one of his um, one of his many magician tricks involved this automaton setup. So it, w- it would be this, this box suspended in the air and it would appear that there was a, a woman's voice coming from that box. And it turns out that the automaton is actually operated by Master Abraham and the girl's voice. He's, he's just projecting this girl's voice, but actually she's locked in a trunk. This girl that's locked in the trunk is this character named Kiara, who we learn that um, Master Abraham basically kidnaps her from her grandmother and takes her away from her from her family and basically enslaves her and uh, has her do this this magic trick for him. And throughout part two and also in part three, uh, this is presented as as a love story. Um, solely, yeah, solely from Abraham's perspective. So he, we don't hear from Kiara, we hear from him. And in each of these sections, he's referring to her as kind of the love of his life that's been lost and and he says he refers he thinks with deep sadness about you know the loss of his love the invisible girl which is how he refers to her um but of course with the circumstances of their relationship it's not a love story um at all the book doesn't acknowledge that this was a this is not a romantic relationship. He enslaved her. So throughout part two and part three, we frequently witness Master Abraham despairing over Kiara's absence and having this really outsized reaction where he laments again over her absence and he talks about how much he loved her and and he has this outsized reaction to what really isn't a love story what seems to be a story in which he is very much the villain similarly Hedwiga as we see her at the beginning of part three is having a very physical visceral reaction potentially to another kind of complicated entanglement that I would never call love, whether it was what was going on with Prince Hector or what was going on with Chrysler. Regardless, Hedwiga is having this um, really difficult emotional and physical response. And I think we see in both 
what's going on with Hedwiga, what's going on, which we'll get to in later episodes with Madame Benzone and Prince Irenaeus and with Master Abraham, that all of the humans have these very difficult, problematic uh, entanglements that I would never call love. While the cats, on the other hand, have these dalliances where they meet each other, they enjoy each other's company, and then they are able to part ways. And in most instances, the two cats involved in the relationship want what's best for the other cat. Um, So uh, Murr and Kitty don't really wish ill on either, on each other. They are happy that the other is thriving and succeeding. I mean, a big, a big part of that is because the human relationships are all embedded in these such wildly unequal power dynamics that aren't really acknowledged by Hoffman. So, you know, Hedwiga is being married off to this stranger from Naples. Prince, not a prince from Naples. Um, In case we haven't already mentioned that, yes, he is also a prince who's not really a (laughs) prince. Or a prince who's not a prince who maybe became a prince again. So she's, you know, laundered into this potential marriage with him purely, you know, because her it would benefit her father. The relationship with Chrysler, it's obviously he has very intense feelings. I, I genuinely struggled to read any interactions with Chrysler as romantic. And I was really looking for it and I just couldn't, I couldn't find it. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of stuff about the intensity of, uh, you know, like I said, he switches between irony mode and like mm-hmm. extreme emotion. And I just don't, I don't see a, a straightforward love story developing there. And there's also power dynamics at play, even if there is a love story there, because Chrysler yes. is employed by her family. So if, if there is one with Hedwiga and Chrysler, yes. there's a power dynamic there. There's also a power dynamic if there's a love story between him and Julia, you know, and then between Hector and Julia. The power dynamic with Julia, of course, is that Julia's mother is also invested in arranging a suitable match for Julia. It's hard to read these as love stories, given that they're all embedded in this, you know, complete lack of autonomy involved in, you know, elite marriage arrangements. Which I think also makes it hard to read what's happening with Hedwiga at this as, you know, is this solely because of love lost, which is kind of how the, the how the doctor really wants to really wants to read it like that yeah exactly and it could be you know maybe this is not because of love lost but it's because of trauma regarding all of the really intense events that have been happening at this court for the last you know little bit and so there's many things that Hedwiga has experienced um leading up to that gunshot and the disappearance of Hector and Chrysler that could have contributed to her being in this kind of catatonic state that have nothing to do with love. Uh, It's almost like, you know, the doctor is saying, oh, like, women are so delicate. Like, they just can't, you know, she, her heart was so broken, you know, that type of thing. And I think what's interesting is that there's not even really evidence of that in the text itself. Yeah. Um, Which part of that is because we know that Hoffman was very, very fascinated by depictions of mental illness and like, physical manifestations of mental illness. I think I think the the in this book and you know many of his other works as well he is working through um he's working that's kind of that's an intellectual problem that really fascinates him and so mm-hmm. I think he's not even really saying outright that oh this is you know love coral. I think he's yeah. put the put the seeds in there that that's that's not what that's not what he's interested in in doing. 
with this whole incident. Yeah, because I don't think he establishes the doctor as like an authority figure in this. Exactly. The doctor, yeah, the doctor is presented as someone who's almost like salacious in in he the doctor kind of comes in and offers some um, some recommendations for how to cure Hedwiga and comes into the situation as a doctor, right, as a physician offering medical advice, but then he transitions into almost a gossip, which is kind of what we were saying earlier, where he's trying to talk uh, to Hedwig's mother and get get the details, like what happened, you know, and and dig a little bit. And it's not really, it seems, for a medical reason. It's more, you know, he comes becomes more of this kind of like salacious figure who's right. looking to confirm this kind of sensational diagnosis with gossip, basically. Yeah. And this, uh, this character of Kiara, um, who... We get the full story of her enslavement in part two, um, but we also learn that she disappeared shortly after that. Uh, and so this disappearance um, throughout part three, Master Abraham is suddenly reminiscing on this disappearance of Kiara. We learn that Master Abraham was, he was on the verge of of leaving Sikartsov with Kiara and he wanted to actually quit his job at Prince Irenaeus's court and wanted to go start you know, started a new life somewhere with, with Kiara. Um, but the day, you know, basically the day before that happens or the day that, he, that he's supposed to do that, she is nowhere, nowhere to be seen. She, she doesn't, she's not at home or she, you know, doesn't show up to his, um, to his cottage. Um, so everyone at Prince Irenaeus's court is in different kinds of crises. Like we said, Hector is gone. Hedwiga is catatonic. Um, and we start to learn, and this is what we'll pick up with in the next episode, we start to learn about some of the connections or possible connections or suspected connections between all these different pieces, namely the the monastery, uh, you know, what's happening with Chrysler and um, what's happening back at the court. Um, we learn a little bit about Madame Benzon's involvement in all this. It turns out she's actually a pretty pivotal character in all of the all of these people's lives. Master Abraham, as we've you know said before on this podcast, is the glue that holds the whole book together in some ways. And obviously Chrysler is too, but Master Abraham is the one who's just kind of he's been everywhere. Um, and we'll get some of those reveals as part three goes on. So that wraps up our discussion of the first few sections of part three. We will pick up next episode discussing some of the reveals we learn in part three about the relationships between the people at Prince Irenaeus's court. We'll also follow Murr as he goes off into battle, several battles actually, and learns to deal with the loss of a friend. So we will see you next time. See you next episode. 